Cuban Serenade, a podcast series exploring the history of Cuban music in Canada. We are Karen Dubinsky and Freddy Monasterio. In part one of the episode Cuban Music Without Cubans, Cuban Sounds in 1980s and 90s Toronto, we interviewed music promoter and programmer Derek Andrews, drummer and academic Vince Macarone, music journalist Nick Jennings, singer and activist Lorraine Segato, and Cuban-Canadian street poet and vocalist Talmari, all to understand how world music came to Toronto. We focused on the importance of spaces like the Harbourfront Centre, the Bamboo Club and the Queen Street West Strip, and on the work of groundbreaking artists and promoters such as Parachute Club, Billy Bryans, Jane Bennett, and Derek Andrews. As we learned from our interviews, there were very few Cuban artists and music professionals based in Toronto during that period. In part two, we will continue exploring the world music scene in 1990s Toronto. We will focus on the impact of Claudi Congo, a nine-piece San Montuno band that in its early stages didn't have any Cubans on its lineup. Claudi Congo's regular Friday gig at La Cervecería on College Street in the mid to late 1990s created a new space for the Cuban music scene in Toronto. In pre-Lula Lounge times, La Cervecería was the hottest spot in town to dance and listen to live Cuban music, as was documented by Mark Galloway and other music journalists. In this second part, we're going to hear more from journalist Nick Jennings and Parachute Club's founder and lead singer Lorraine Segato. We are also going to speak to Jay Danley, who transformed his acoustic guitar into a tres cubano and founded Claudi Congo, together with Blair Martin, Tailheart, Frost, and other non-Cuban musicians. In part one, Nick Jennings talked to us about the importance of Billy Bryans, Jane Bennett, and others in helping to promote Cuban and world music in Toronto. They faced many challenges. So too did music journalists in Canada in the 80s and 90s. Nick spoke to us about his early experiences pitching stories about world music to Canadian newspapers and magazines. I was going to the far fringes of Toronto and into um, banquet halls where people in the African community there booked and presented local African artists. And I would say, if I haven't stressed this already, I would say again that my first awareness of any kind of quote-unquote world music in Toronto was more African and there was a very large Ghanaian community and, and a smaller Congolese community and Nigerian community. but. You know, I remember going to uh, dances in different neighborhood community halls like that um, and hearing local African bands. And then it was the same thing, uh, I suppose, with, with some of the, the, the Latin groups and artists I was hearing. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't downtown. And the exception, the exception would be the Bamboo Club. That was the scene. I think Now Magazine occasionally started writing a little bit about this music. And I decided, I, I was at McLean's until 1990, and then in 1992, I started writing about the music that Derek Andrews was putting on at Harbourfront. And I was, I was writing for the Toronto Star as a freelancer. And then I started writing um, a weekly column at iWeekly called Global Groove. 
And I was writing about Cuban music there, uh, Latin music, African music, world music in general in my column. I was their pop, pop music critic or their music critic. So I was doing all the music writing for McLean's through the nine, uh, through the eighties and then through the nineties as well as a freelancer. But I can count on one hand the, the number of articles I got to write about so-called world music. But you know, I was I was lucky, I suppose, in that I had an editor who was um, well disposed to, to that type of music anyway himself. He was he you know he and I were sharing our listening tastes, and you know I I think I got more of a, a chance to write about this than I, I might have otherwise if I didn't have such a if I wasn't pushing so hard if I if I if I, I didn't have a, a receptive editor. It was better for me actually in the '90s with the Toronto Star and with I Weekly. I mean. As I said, I mean, I, I got a weekly column with my editor there telling me, yeah, sure, let, let's have you focus specifically on this this so-called world music. And the star, I think because of um, what was happening at Harborfront with WOMAD, and then subsequently with other uh, festi- music festivals that Harborfront put on, um, some of which were, were Latin-based music festivals, you know, it was it, it, it. The star, I think, was 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 very receptive um, during the summer months when these festivals were taking place. So th- that was that was my experience as a as a journalist in Toronto. Nick Jennings played a very important role by promoting some of the early world music scenes in Toronto. Other journalists that have made important contributions are Matt Galloway and Aaron Nazareth host for many years of the popular Toronto radio show Big City Small World. Errol, who has championed the music emerging from Toronto's various ethnic communities for almost two decades, has just launched a new CBC show called Frequencies, which highlights musical storytelling from cultures and communities across Canada that are not always reflected in mainstream media. African-Canadian journalist Matt Galloway was also immersed in the world music scene of 1990s Toronto. He wrote about the sensational Son Montuno band Claude Congo, who performed at the college street pub La Cerveceria. Beginning in 1995, La Cerveceria, located west of Queen Street's Bamboo Club, began hosting the homemade Cuban band Claude Congo. We spoke to one of its co-founders, Jay Danley, about this curious, passionately Cuban band of non-Cubans. Along with Blake Martin, Danley was in love with Cuban percussion and Cuban musical history, but knew nothing about how to play it. Group Clave Congo learned to play Son Cubano step by step by baby step. The group originally in its first incarnation was all Canadian, Anglo-Saxon males. And we were all in different rock and roll backgrounds. Um, and most of us, myself included, had not even heard of Cuban song let alone heard it. 
and the desire on each of the musicians that were attending these informal, obviously non-paid sessions, was that we wanted to learn and grow as musicians. It was strictly for an artistic experience. There was no design behind it to try to see this as a way to make money as a musician. We were all resigned to the fact that because we're musicians, we're probably not going to make very much money. So this was a purely artistic endeavor that was incredibly satisfying. Sitting in a room that actually had the, the um, uh, polyrhythmic aspect of Afro-Cuban percussion happening, that is where one instrument, a rhythm instrument over here does its job, the next instrument over here does its job, the third instrument over here does its job, and then they all combine together to create something that is bigger than the sum of the parts was something that I'd never quite experienced before. I had experienced things like drum circles and other types of, of percussion ensembles, but this is Cuban percussion. This is where everybody does their own individual part and it comes together and it, it, it meshes like gears. And it absolutely mesmerized me. There was this deliberate intent in the band to sound as much as we possibly could like a band from approximately 1936 Cuba. I mean very specifically, the shedding of a musical ego in order to grow as a musician was a wonderful experience. So the attention to authenticity was a big, big deal for the group. We were so driven and passionate at recreating what we heard that we would deliberately choose to do things in a way that are not being done anymore and not being considered the right way to do things anymore. That was a, a very powerful and refreshing thing to think. That's totally shedding the musical ego. The band needed a tres player. There was another guitar player in the band, Andrew Frost, who was already picking up the tres and starting to play it. But I was rather um, strong-willed and strong-minded in it. I knew that I wanted to, I knew that I wanted to play that instrument because I felt at that time it had to do with this, that this band and this idea was the biggest and most important thing in my life at that time. And so I wanted to, uh, contribute to it as much as I possibly could and I felt that the way that I could do that the most was to take what we might refer to in North American culture as a lead guitar role. I was a little bit pushy about it. I've talked to my friend Andrew about it where there's no there's no concerns or anything like that but I, I was very strong-willed in wanting to do this. I wanted to contribute to the group as much as I possibly could and didn't feel that I could do that if I were playing rhythm guitar and singing background vocals. It was a natural fit. Blair took an old guitar that he had, which was an old Stella, a black Stella guitar, and we basically kind of butchered it. We took a hacksaw blade to the bridge and to the nut of the guitar, and we cut slats into the guitar, and we restrung it like a tres. What was difficult was learning to play Cuban music. Playing the tres, no. Learning to play Cuban music, yeah 
because you have to understand that this guitar has a role. It has a rhythmic role, like everything else in the music. This is not, this is not like other forms of music where everybody just plays like this on the beat like this. Every little piece has to be in its exact spot in order for the rhythm to work properly. That took me a while to learn. I was not at first playing the rhythm properly, so I was essentially not playing the music properly, the most important. And this is how Clave y Congo became the house band at the Cerveceria pub on College Street, creating a lively cultural scene around Cuban music in downtown Toronto. The person that played the clave, the instrument, his name was Anthony Redman, and he sang background vocals, and he lived across the street, right directly across the street from the Cerveceria. He's the one that went in and spoke to Lou, the owner of the Cerveceria, and said, could we get a gig here? Now, there is another tie-in with that. Part of the inspiration for Blair wanting to put together a rhythm ensemble, a drumming group, was because of the World Cup celebrations that had been going on at the Cervejeria, 1990 and 94 in particular, uh, where they had drumming groups outside. And he was really caught up in that. So, he thought it was, so it ties in that way. But specifically, Anthony Redman went to Lou at the Cervejeria and said, could we get a gig? Just a common thing for a musician to do in Toronto. Lou says, yeah, sure, you know, I can afford to give you a few bucks. Maybe I'll give you, I think, I think we made, I think, I think we started off, possibly it was $60 per player, which is generous because he'd never heard the band and we were like a nine piece group at that time. You don't get that kind of generosity that much. I think one of the things that made that possible was the fact that Lou owned the building. So he wanted to give it a shot. We simply start playing there. What ends up happening is that we didn't do any advertising for the gig whatsoever. We just played. It being where it was on College Street, somehow some other people just picked up on it. It, it. it did a very organic thing. It just started to pick up momentum, but people probably just walking by. Also, the fact that the members of the band were hanging out in the uh, Cuban music community and talking about the fact that we had this gig so other people would come. After it gets a little bit of steam going, what ends up happening is that it attracts people from the Cuban music community, but their extended friends and family too. So we started to get quite a few college students that wanted to come, uh, university students. It's not expensive. I believe it was like $5 to get in. It was not expensive beer either. It was the Cervejeria. It's this really cool, beautiful, but very down-to-earth place, right? Okay? Had that big, beautiful dance floor in the back. It had a nice bar in the front. You could sit up in the front and watch soccer if you wanted to and listen to the music. Totally unpretentious. Part of its appeal was the fact that people could simply arrive wearing uh, jeans and sneakers if you wanted. And as long as you had a good vibe, you'd be welcome. If you wanted to dress up, you could do that as well. You would see on a Friday night, I remember this particularly, that you would see three generations of a family sometimes. You would see grandparents, parents, and children. And we would have little kids at like 11 o'clock at night running around on the dance floor. And coming from my background, I was not accustomed to that. And I liked it. I thought that this is a really, really beautiful thing. This is transcending any concepts of like um, rock star bullshit or anything like that. We're playing for families now. This is this is more human. This is terrific. Love that. 
and we see the young university students are now hanging out with the grandparents and this is and this is being explained to me by other people that yeah this is kind of a, a cultural thing you know uh, perhaps in north america you're not really accustomed to that but that's not really that you know person from venezuela a friend of mine bernardo padron was explaining to me no this is actually this is this is actually quite common in venezuela you know you'd see this often so i thought that's a beautiful thing to be a part of it would be easy to assume that Cloudy Congo were basically a Buenavista Social Club tribute band, but that's actually not the case at all. They were already going when Ray Cooder's internationally famous collaboration with traditional Cuban musicians exploded worldwide. As Danley says, they caught a wave. We had the band up and going and playing by late 1995. The album and film, The Buena Vista Social Club, comes out, if I'm not mistaken, summer of 1996. We'd already been going for about eight months, not knowing anything about The Buena Vista Social Club. Not at all. So this film is released. The album is released. There's a wave of popularity for Cuban music that happens. Definitely benefits the cervejeria scene. Again, Zero advertising on our part and on the part of the cervejeria. None. People just heard about it and started coming. The numbers at the door started to increase a great deal. This kind of popularity, both local and national, Clave y Congo were able to branch out a bit beyond their home at the College Street Bar. Iliadis Ochoa and Cortero Patria were scheduled to come and play a performance at the harbor front. They were on tour and the album and film Buena Vista Social Club was to come out the next month. Okay, so they were touring and developing some momentum for this thing. We received a phone call, Blair and, and Neil Gardner, our trombone player, received a phone call from Derek Andrews. Derek called us up and said, we've got a bit of a situation. We need somebody to meet Eliadis and his band at the airport. Go and pick them up and see what happens from there. What ended up happening from there, Blair and Neil went and picked them up and brought them around Toronto bought them some, uh, some uh, bongo skins, bought them some rum, cigars, and basically made friends with Iliadis and the band, which was a really great thing. Because when they went and played at the harbor front, I guess it might have been the next night, we all got to meet them and hang out with them. I got to meet my musical idol, Eliadis Ochoa, for the first time and we played a little guitar and we had a drink of rum and uh, I didn't speak any Spanish, but we tried to communicate with one another. When Eliade Ochoa came to perform at the Harborfront Center in 1997 as part of Caribana, Claudio Congo's lead singer Blair Martin got a chance to spend a bit of time with him. Blair told journalist Matt Galloway for a Now Magazine article in 1998. I learned more about singing from him in half an hour than I could have on my own for a year. During that visit to Toronto, the members of Claudio Congo arranged for Eliades and his band to play a la cervecería. We know you like our music, they told their fans, but you have to come and see the real thing. Eliades Ochoa came back more than once after that. More often than not, 
What would actually happen is it would be completely unannounced. He would, there would, we would, the band would be playing away, and in the back you would see a, a an older gentleman with a very large cowboy hat would walk in, and he would go to the back, and he would be in the corner in the dark by himself. Eventually, Clave y Congo was joined by Cuban musicians, the bassist Freddy Suarez, for example. Some members of the group, including Jay, continued on with other Cuban musicians to create another band, Sonache. For Jay, this was another chance to play with some of his musical inspirations. I did find myself having the wonderful experience of playing with like Alexis Barrow right off by my right ear. I, I, you know, like that's an incredible musician. And Chendi Leon Jr., Chendine, is on timbales. What an incredible musician. What a phenomenal person, too. I, I, I love these people. And another one, too, that came into the band was um, Chendine's father, Chendi Sr. And that was another one of these great times when I couldn't speak to Chendi fluently but we had no problem understanding one another. In addition to Elias Ochoa and his group, Claudio Congo's regular Friday night shows were frequented by other Cuban musicians who were visiting Canada, for example, by some members of the popular song group Sierra Maestra. The legendary compaiser Undo also paid a visit and even sang along with Claudio Congo. When it was Claudio Congo, compaiser Gundo came, came to the Cervejeria to hear the band, and, and Jane Bennett was with him. And uh, there's a story with Compay Segundo. We're playing the song, Ahora Me Da Pena. Hasta pena me da, pena me da. We're singing the song. We play the song all the way through. And he's and he comes in when we're about, you know, a third of the way through the song. Comes in. And he sits down at the back with Jane. And we know that he's there. We're still playing the song. Just play it, play it. We get basically to the very end of the song, like the last chorus. And suddenly, this very, very loud bass voice from the back of the room is singing louder than the band and he's singing the first verse of the song so we don't have any choice we just start the song again and sure enough he comes up onto the stage and he sings the song with us all the way through Clave y Congo had other brushes with Cuban fame, including having Orishas open for them one summer at the Harborfront Center. This may be the only time in the world where this is imaginable. Orishas, an internationally famous Cuban hip-hop group, opened in Toronto for a bar band of Canadian white guys who learned their music from listening to old Cuban records. To be fair, this was ironic. But, as journalist Matt Galway said in the Pages of Now magazine in 1998, it sounds like the blueprint for ghastly cultural appropriation, but the members of Clave y Congo have clearly done their homework. Jay Danley says he learned a lot about music from playing with Cuban musicians, but it wasn't just about new sounds and instruments. With players like that, Hilario, Alexis, Chandy, 
Max Sennett was playing drums. These musicians are on another level professionally and musically, but it was very much in a certain way back to what Clave Congo had originally been in this way. These people are extremely passionate about music. That's really why they're there. Pay is better, professionalism is better, but actually the attitude amongst the musicians was, wow, this is really, really cool. I wonder what I can learn here. The level of cynicism was greatly diminished. The appreciation for, man, music is the best. This is so cool. And wow, did you hear what he just did? And what, geez, we can do this. And check this out. You know, and musicians showing each other shit and all of this kind of stuff. It, it, so it took that step up in professionalism and realized that in a certain way, I'd come back full circle to something that was back to being passionate about music again. And that was, that was awesome, you know? And forming these friendships with these incredibly passionate, dynamic people. Cuban music without Cubans is a weird concept. It doesn't make sense anymore, as Cuban musicians have had, in the past couple of decades, a huge impact in Canada. They collaborate, but they don't longer have to be invited on Canadian stages any longer. Lorraine Segaro spoke to us honestly about how Parachute Club came to grapple with the privileges that accrue to them as white Canadians. Once Parachute Club became, you know, like huge across the country, the people that were in our community, that's when they started to say to us, okay, let's talk about appropriation, appropriation of music, appropriation of culture. Let's, let's start to talk about that. So there were dialogues And, you know, we were criticized, not by everybody, but by some people, you know, because there was jealousy there, A, but also there was a very valid point. We were a group of seven white people playing music from all over the world, right? And while we were also, while there was misogyny and homophobia and all of these things that were being thrown towards us, we were still people of privilege. And so this was also this moment where this dialogue around cultural appropriation started to happen. And it was so important. It was so important. It was very uncomfortable, but really important because it again, then exploded the ideas out even further and more and more people, more and more artists came, you know, so that's why I think we were the lightning rod, you know, and the lightning rod goes both ways. It lights and it charges and it explodes uh, things that are uncomfortable. In November 2019, the song Rise Up was inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. A number of Parachute Club members reunited with other musicians on stage in Toronto's Phoenix Club to sing a joyful rendition of this Canadian anthem. There's a clip on YouTube. As we were watching it in preparation for this episode, we saw that the conga player among this large band of musicians was none other than Magdala Sevigne from the Cuban group Ocan, currently living in Toronto. You might remember Ocan. They performed an updated Chicho Valle song for us on our first episode. Sevigne belongs to the current generation of Cuban musicians in Canada, who we'll hear more about in future episodes. Magdala Sevigne sitting in Billy Bryan's seat at the drums, playing Rise Up. The past and the present almost touched each other. We hope you enjoyed the second part of this episode, Cuban Music Without Cubans. 
Cuban sounds in 1980s and 1990s Toronto. Stay tuned for other episodes of Cuban Serenade, where we will continue exploring the history of Cuban music in Canada. Hasta pronto.